So the summer of 2001 is when I really started to get serious with my faith. I was entering my senior year in high school. I felt God was doing something in my heart and life. I wasn't really sure what it was at the moment. Eventually, I would come to settle that God was calling me into the ministry. And long story short, here I am today. But in the summer of 2001, what really helped me grapple with my faith, get serious with my faith, was the book of Romans. As I read through the book of Romans multiple times that summer, God just really grabbed my heart about the gospel and what it is and the importance for our life and our relationship with him. He helped me to see some things I've never seen before, understand some things I've never understood before, and then wonder why did I miss these all these years. And so for that reason, man, I love Romans. I always have. Romans is a book that has captured my heart. It's a book that has captured my mind. It's a book I go back to and read through often. And I'm really excited that for the next five weeks, we are going to be digging into that book together. Now, when I say over the next five weeks, I don't mean that we're going to go verse by verse through Romans in five weeks. That's not going to happen. Matter of fact, the first time I ever preached through Romans, I just preached through Romans chapter eight, and it took me three months. So we're going to try and go a whole lot faster in this uh, series over the next five weeks. And while we won't be able to go verse by verse, what we are going to do is look at the big concepts of Romans. See, Romans is a book that is very logically put together. Paul, the author of Romans, and about two-thirds of your New Testament, uses the book of Romans to outline an argument for the gospel for salvation. And he deals with it really in five big chunks that we're going to see as we go through this book together. And as we go through it, it's going to force us to kind of step back and instead of getting lost in each particular verse, to really wrestle with these big concepts. What do they mean? How do they apply to our lives? It's going to force us to really wrestle with these big ideas. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited to dig in, to deal with some of these subjects, and to really see the implications that they have for our life. And what you're going to see as we go through these, uh, go through these five weeks, go through these arguments that Paul's making, is that several times in Romans, he's going to throw out one statement to kind of summarize his case, to summarize the argument that he's been making, to put kind of a bow on everything he's been talking about. And I think when you see these verses, you're going to realize, man, I've heard those verses before. They are some of the most uh, often memorized, most often quoted verses out of Romans. Uh, Oftentimes they're referred to as the Romans road of salvation that we use to help people understand how you can put your faith in Jesus as Savior. And it's those verses that kind of summarize what he's been talking about in depth for multiple chapters. So what we're going to do, because we have no time to waste today, is hop right into the book of Romans and look at one of those verses, maybe one of the most famous verses to come out of Romans, Romans chapter 3 verse 23. This is what Paul writes when he says this, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I feel very confident that you've heard that verse before. Maybe you've never read it. Maybe you didn't know it came from Romans. Maybe you've heard someone else say it before, but you've heard that verse. Many of you may have that verse memorized. You didn't know it was just in Romans. You knew it was Romans 3.23. Matter of fact, you could use Romans 3.23 to then go to other verses in Romans to explain salvation. But this is a huge uh, verse for us as we begin our study of Romans because this is really one of the first big points 
points that Paul is making here in this book that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is sin? When we think about sin, what is sin? Now, I know that sin can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. For some people, sin is something that's very serious. For others, it's something to be joked about. For one thing, for some people, sin is something that should be minimized. Uh, for others, sin is something that should be avoided entirely. But what is sin? Well, let's just start there. I think the most basic way that we can understand sin is that sin is any thought, attitude, or action that goes against God's will and against his character. It's the breaking of any of his commands, whether it's the letter of the law or just the spiritual intent behind it. Really, what Paul says is that sin is when we fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you grew up around church, specifically in the Awana program, you probably heard an illustration that you're thinking about right now when it comes to what does it mean to sin. In Awanas, we're taught that sin is to miss the mark, right? And so maybe you had a teacher in your class that talked about a bow and arrow and a target, and sin is missing the mark of the target. It's missing the target. It's falling short. Yes, that is sin. But more than that, sin is any thought, attitude, or action that falls short. It's not just the bad choices we make. Matter of fact, it goes deeper than that. What we're going to see, what we're going to understand is it's not that we have, not just that we have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but we are all sinners who fall short of God's glory. And we're going to press into that today, but, but I think when you look at that verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we might understand, okay, what is sin? This is a big deal, but we don't understand how we got there. See, Paul doesn't jump right into the book of Romans in chapter 323. That's his first, remember, summary statement. That's his first concluding idea. So let's go back and start to look at how Paul builds his case to get us to the point where we realize that we are all sinners who fall short of God's glory. So if you got your Bibles, let's jump all the way back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, starting in verse 16, Paul lays out really what is going to be the premise of the book of Romans going forward. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So when we, when we look at that, I think here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he's introducing two big ideas that really are one idea that are going to be the theme of his book moving forward. And that is the idea of the gospel and salvation. What is that? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, and how we can find new life in him. That new life is what we call salvation. It's being saved. It is the fact that though we are sinners who fall short of God's glory, that in his riches of kindness and mercy, God looks down and offers salvation to those who could never come to him on their own. He would see us as lost and still save us. 
See, that's what salvation is. And so what you're going to see through Paul's argument in the book of Romans is he's going to kind of build his argument around salvation. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next five weeks. This week, we're talking about the need for salvation. Then we're going to see the price of salvation. Then we're going to see the results of that salvation. We're going to see the scope of that salvation. And then finally, we're going to spend our fifth week talking about the fruits that that salvation brings to bear in our life. So this idea of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he's done, his death, burial, and resurrection, and how that brings about salvation is the entire point of the book of Romans. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on as we go through Romans is the idea of this gift of salvation that God has given us. But see, that's not the only important concepts he introduces here in chapter one, verse 16 and 17. He also says that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he says, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And maybe you're watching right now and you're saying to the Jew and the Greek, what about me? I'm an American. Well, these are two concepts that Paul is uh, sharing to two specific audiences. There was a Jewish audience in the church at Rome who were highly religious and steeped in the traditions of Jewish law. And then there were the Greeks or the Gentiles who maybe were more irreligious and definitely not as steeped in the Jewish customs and traditions. And what Paul is saying from get-go is that this gift of salvation is for the Jew and for the Greek. It's for the religious and it's for the irreligious. And maybe we can kind of make that a little bit more applicable to our situation today. Maybe we can see its relevance if we say it's not just to the Jew and the Greek, not just to the religious and the irreligious. The gospel is for church people and not for church people. Right. So, so there are there are two kinds of people, I think, that you find in the deep south. There are church people and there are not church people. And what Paul says from the get go is that the gospel isn't just for church people. The good news of salvation isn't just for church people. It's for those who would consider themselves not church people. I don't want to be one of those people. And, you know, you, you may think, well, Chip, I don't know that that's that big of a dividing line. It is. When I say church people, I don't necessarily mean people who always go to church. There are a lot of church people who live in this part of the world who don't go to church except on Christmas and Easter. But if you were to ask them, they would say, oh, yeah, I know I should get back in church. Life's been busy. Things have been hard. I really know I should. They may not be going, but they're church people. And then there are people who aren't church people. And when you ask them about church, their answer is not that I know I should get back, but I'm not going. And one of the reasons that they give, and in my experience, one of the primary reasons they give for not going is the church people. There's a distinction there. There are people who are church people who are, are, are really well rooted and grounded in the traditions of religion. And there are not church people who have rejected a lot of the traditions of religion because of what they've seen in the lives of church people. And what Paul says right here at the beginning that we've got to understand is that this gift of salvation is not just for those who would be church people. It's for unchurched people as well. It's for the Jew and also for the Greek. And then there's one more idea that he lays out to us here in these verses that are going to set the tone for the rest of the book when he says, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
So there's two words there, righteousness and faith, that we're going to be seeing again and again. And next week, we're really going to drill down on those two words, righteousness and faith. But here's what I want you to understand, is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, the power of God to save, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed and then received by faith. When we say righteousness, what we mean is this is that God is holy, that God is perfect, God is righteous. And I don't have to convince you that you and I are not. We're not perfect people. In ourselves, we're not righteous. We are broken, messed up, jacked up. And listen, people who are not church people, there's some validity to their uh, avoidance of church people because we claim to believe one thing and then often live another. And see, that's the point that Paul is trying to make, and we're going to see him make this week, is that no matter if you're a church person or if you're not a church person, neither one of those people are going to find the righteousness of God on their own. We're both broken. We're both messed up. We're both jacked up, even if oftentimes that reveals itself in different ways. But the hope of the gospel, the hope of the book of Romans is that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God offers a free gift of salvation to all who would believe. But let's keep going because he expands this idea of our need for this righteousness, our need for this salvation in the very next verse, chapter one, verse 18. Read it with me if you will. It says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he's made. And as a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So what Paul introduces here is bringing us back to this idea of sin. That yes, we've been offered this gift of salvation. Yes, we have been, that gift has been offered to the Jews and the Greeks, church people and not church people. It is a gift of the righteousness of God by faith. And the reason that that gift is offered is because right now we are in desperate need of it. We are under the wrath of a holy God. See, not only are we sinners, but as sinners, we stand under the full weight of the wrath of God. What that means is that because God is holy and because God is perfect and because we are not, his holiness and perfection by necessity must judge sin. It cannot let sin stand. And we don't really like that concept. That concept kind of bristles us the wrong way. We want to think, well, why can't God just let it slide? Why can't God just let it go? But in reality, who would want a God that is holy and yet didn't care about sin? Who would want a God that didn't care about justice? Who would want a God that didn't care about what was right? Who would want a God that they found out at the end of time would look at the likes of Hitler and Stalin and say, hey, it's no big deal, guys, come on in. And we may say, well, those people deserve judgment, but not me. 
No, no, you miss it. Because God is wholly perfect. He must wholly judge sin. And because of that, you and I, who by nature are sinners, are under his wrath. What is that wrath? That wrath is judgment. That wrath is punishment. That wrath is anger. It is his wrath against sin. And you may say, well, why? Why, why do we stand under that wrath? Like, I, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know I've messed up, but, but you know, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, but that's not what Paul says. If you, if you read carefully here in chapter 1, verses 18 to, to 20, you saw that, that there's a little bit more going on in there. See, what Paul says is it's not just that we've messed up in our sins, but that we have suppressed the truth of God we have rejected the truth of God, and ultimately, we have replaced the truth of God. Now, this is huge because we have suppressed that truth. And what Paul is saying here is that every single person who has ever lived just by looking out at the creation has an innate sense of a creator, that he is good, that he is kind, that he is holy. When we look at the world, we can see that, but we suppress that. And ultimately, we suppress that to the point of rejecting it. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that God exists. I don't believe that he is good. We reject it, and then ultimately, we replace it. We replace it with something else that we want, and that's what Paul lays out here in Romans chapter 1, is that people knew God, but they rejected God and replaced God by making, four, by making uh, idols out of four-legged animals and birds and even man himself. So we've replaced God with things that we would rather worship. And before you think that's something that those people did, you need to realize that's what's happening still today in our world is that we are still suppressing the innate truth of what we know creation and God to be. We are rejecting what we know it to be, and then we are replacing it with new standards of what we want to worship and how we want to live. And keep going, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, that's why Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. So what Paul is saying is this. He's not saying don't judge, right? We, we, we see that word judge and we think, oh, that means don't judge. People, Christians shouldn't judge one another. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you are already judging others. We all do this. We all set a standard of what we think is fair, what we think is right, what we think is just, and we impose that standard on others. And Paul says, because of that, you stand judged because you can't even live up to your own standards. Now, now, this is huge, right? Because when we look at people around us, we want to judge them by their actions. But when it comes to ourselves, we want to judge ourselves by our intentions. Think, think about this. That person who just blew your doors off on Highway 90, that person is speeding because they are reckless and they are a jerk. But when you are speeding and you blow off granny's doors on 90, it's because you're late, you've got somewhere to go, it's important. 
See, we do that in every area of our life. We judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Paul says, no, that doesn't cut the cake. You are judged by a standard, one that you don't set, and even if you did set it, you still wouldn't live up to it. Keep looking at what he says. Skip down a few verses to verse number, or verse number 12. He says, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. See, what Paul is saying here is that whether you are a church person or not a church person, you still stand judged. You're either judged by the law of Scripture that you fail to keep, or you're judged by a law that you think you've determined that you don't even uphold yourself. Why? Because in the end, it's not our good intentions. It is our actions by which we are judged. And you and I have all fallen short on our actions. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. We've all screwed up. We have all known what was right and chosen wrong. We have all known what was right and taken the easy way out. We stand condemned. And that's what Paul lays out in chapter 3. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 9. He says, What then? Are we any better off? For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, as it is written, and then look at this, he, he lays it out. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. See, this is the grip that sin has us in. This is the rule of sin that we are all subject to. We are not just sinners because we sin. We sin because by our very nature, we are born sinners. Adam and Eve, the very first people that God ever created living in the perfect paradise of the Garden of Eden, rejected the rule and authority of God. They uh, chose their own way and in so doing plunged all of humanity who would come after into this sin nature. And so Paul says, look at what he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. It's all of us. We're all condemned. We all fall short. And so if you're a church person, 
It can be really easy to judge that unchurched person and say, well, look at them. They don't keep the law. They sin. They don't live up to God's standard. Paul looks at you and says, neither do you. You don't keep the law you claim to believe. You don't live up to God's standard. You fall short. You're no better than they. And then to the unchurched person, who looks at the hypocrisy of the religious people and says, yeah, that's right. You can't keep the standard that you want to put on me. You're a hypocrite too. Paul looks at you and says, and so are you. Because the standards that you claim to live by, the standards that you set for yourself are not even standards that you can keep. You don't even keep your own standards because you want to judge yourself by your intentions and others by their actions. We are all condemned we all fall short. There is none righteous. There is not one. And Paul says that no one will be justified in the sight of God by the works of the law. That means that because we are sinners born in sin, that there is not a person alive who by their effort, by their works, by their attempts, and we're going to get into this next week, by their attempts at their own righteousness, who can earn their way to this gift of salvation. We are all sinners. So what does that mean? What does that mean? When I say we're all sinners, I think the first thing is this. Sin has corrupted us all. Sin has corrupted us all, every single one of us, from the best of us to the worst of us. We are all sinners under the wrath of God. And I think it's important to remember that when I say that we are all sinful, that doesn't mean that you are as sinful as you could be, right? Because we like to judge ourselves comparatively. We may say, well, yes, I'm a sinner, but everybody's a sinner. At least I'm not as big a sinner as that guy. And immediately when I said that guy, somebody popped into your mind, right? But here's the thing, you don't get to compare yourselves to other people as the standard. Paul has clearly said the standard you have to compare yourself is to God himself. And while you might not be as sinful as you could be, you are still completely sinful. A sinner who falls short of God's glory. A sinner who sits under the weight of his full wrath. And that sin has separated us from God. That means that you and I, who were created for a relationship with God, are now separated from that relationship with God. And there is nothing that you or I can do in ourselves that is going to bridge that gap. We can't get to where he is. And it's not just that we are separated from where he is, but as we've said over and over, that sin has placed us under his judgment. Sin has placed us under the judgment of God. So it's not just as if we are separated from God and there's nothing that God can do about it. He feels bad. He wishes he could help, but he can't. No, we are under the active judgment of God because of our sin. That's what sin deserves. And that's what it means for a holy God to be just. If you want God to care about the wrong done to you, the wrong and evil you see in this world, you can't pick and choose where he starts and where he stops. We have a God that cares deeply about justice and deeply about holiness. 
And that's why he judges our sin as well. And because of that, that sin has left us all in need of a savior. That's where we go from here. That's the point of Romans, is that when we understand our sin, that we are completely sinful, separated from God and under his judgment, now we realize what Paul wants us to see, that we need a savior, that we need a savior to come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We need a savior to save us from our sins. And that's why what I want you to understand today, if you get nothing else is this, is that salvation begins with understanding our sin. I know sin's not fun to talk about. I know that it's something that we like to brush off and move past quickly, but you cannot understand salvation until you begin to wrestle with your sin. It has to start here. If you don't see yourself as sinful, you'll never see a need for a savior. If you've never realized you're lost, why would you ever care if you've been found? It's got to start here. And even more than that, when we minimize this sin, it minimizes because the gospel is what Jesus has done to free us from our sin. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But until you understand the weight of your sin, you're never going to understand the weight of the gospel. And so I'd encourage you to lean into this. Lean into this. This is important. I think this is important not just for us personally when it comes to seeing our need for a savior, I think it's important because it helps explain so much of what we see going on in the world around us. A hundred percent, you've seen the news, you've seen the headlines, you've seen the stories. We live in a world that is broken, a world that is hurting, a world that is in pain, but without an objective concept of sin, all we're left with is a subjective concept of preference. How can we call what is happening in the world around us evil if there is no such thing as sin? You may not like it. It may be, not be your preference. But unless there's an external objective concept of what sin is, then we can't call it evil. We just call it something we'd rather not see happen. C.S. Lewis, the, the author, theologian, he calls this idea the sense of moral oughtness that exists in all of our hearts, something we all feel. What, what do I mean by that? A sense of moral altness. C.S. Lewis feel, says that, you know, there's something in our hearts where we see, hey, that not ought to be. These are how things should be. Things shouldn't be this way. And we've all felt that, right? When we look at the world, we see the headlines, even in our workplaces or in our schools, when we see all of this, something in our heart cries out, that's not right, that's not fair, that not ought to be. And that feeling of moral oughtness comes from somewhere. Precisely, it comes from someone. The holy creator of the universe. The one who has set things in order according to his plan, his design, and in keeping with his character. And when we see the world around us fall short of that good and holy nature, we feel it in our souls. Maybe we don't feel it as much as we should, but I still believe that deep down in our souls, that moral oughtness still echoes. We know this isn't as it should be. But 
we suppress it, we reject it, and we replace it with something that does not require as much of us. But see, I think no matter how hard we try, we know that something's wrong. We know that something is wrong with this world and that something is not bad politics, that something is not capital greed, that something is not some uh, natural disaster. What is wrong with this world is sin. We live in a world that has been broken and cursed by sin, and we still feel and see its effects. And as much as we try to fix it, we can't because we're sinners, right? Just, just look at how many problems we've created by fixing problems we had. One of my favorites is when you look at how many super viruses we've created because of the medicines we made to cure lesser viruses. As humans who are sinful, we cannot fix our sinful world. We make it worse even when we're not trying. And that's why when we understand that the problem is within, it forces us to look for an answer outside. And that answer is the one and only Son of God sent into the world to save it, to make it right. His name is Jesus. When we understand sin, it helps us understand our world and clearly see our need for a Savior. So today, maybe you've never wrestled with that. Maybe you've never wrestled with your need for a Savior. Maybe you've thought that you were just a pretty good person who could be better than most, and when you died and stepped into the next life, if there was one, that you would pass the bar, even if it's just by that much. It's not how it works. We are sinners, separated from God, under His wrath. And the only hope is a Savior sent into the world. So today, maybe for the first time, you would cry out, and ask Jesus to save you from your sin. If that's you, we'd love to talk with you. We have people waiting right now to pray with you, either in the comments or the messages, whatever. Reach out to us. Let us know we're here. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for the time you've given us to, to look at your word and to begin this study in Romans. And God, I pray that as we stick with this over the next few weeks, that you would stir our hearts to see the truth of the gospel and the gift of salvation that you have freely offered. But for today specifically, I pray that you would help us see our need for salvation, that we would see our need for a savior, and that as we feel the weight of our sin, it would drive us to our knees and cast our eyes to Jesus as our only hope. In his name we pray, amen.